Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner, and you are listening to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. It's been pouring here in Storrs, Connecticut all day, so needless to say, I've been seeking shelter. And I think I found some shelter in the form of a podcast with my good friend, Nate Johnson. Nate is a member of the United States Coast Guard, and he's currently getting his master's in philosophy at UConn in preparation to go back and teach ethics at the United States Coast Guard Academy. And in this podcast, we have a discussion about uh, what led Nate to join the Coast Guard. And then we have a wide ranging talk about a paper that he wrote on the ethics involved in search and rescue missions. And towards the end of the podcast, we discuss just some more general topics in military ethics, including the very concept of ethics or morality existing within the context of war, and also the ethics of autonomous weapon systems. So a very interesting conversation, and I'm glad that Nate could come onto the podcast. So without further preamble, I present to you, Nate Johnson. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. All right, I'm here with my friend Nate. Nate, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Cody. Good to be here. So we're going to talk about uh, your paper, The Role of Moral Theories in Maritime Search and Rescue Decisions, and hopefully have a conversation about military ethics more generally. But I thought we could start by having you just explain what led you to join the Coast Guard, and how did you find yourself at UConn? Right, uh, yeah, thanks. So I should start by saying, um, uh, give a disclaimer of sorts that uh, anything I say here is my own opinion or uh, observations based on my own personal experience. So nothing I say should be interpreted as a stance or policy position of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard, the Department of Homeland Security, or the federal government. So um, yeah, I graduated high school in 1999. And I think like most 18-year-old kids, I didn't really know for sure what I wanted to do. Um, I was kind of an introvert growing up. I had ambitions to be a, uh, a forest ranger or something like that, uh, something that would keep me on the periphery of society. Um, but I also uh, had you know, experiences in my youth that led me to believe that I really should uh, be appreciative of the, the way I grew up and the opportunities I had. And uh, my family had a tradition of military service. My father's retired from the military. Uh, my paternal and maternal uh, grandfathers were both both serving in the military. So I felt, uh, I'm not sure obligation might be too strong, but I felt a real desire to at least consider that as an option. Uh, I applied to the Coast Guard Academy. That was the only one I applied to. Um, because it seemed like the best fit for me, uh, and that turned out to be the case. I went, um, you know, so somewhat, I don't know, non-committal at first. Not sure if that's really what I was going to do uh, for my four years of uh, undergrad experience. Uh, and I think most people probably enter enter it that way. Um, but the when you when you get to a military service academy, you realize that you're you're living and eating and sleeping, breathing um, that service culture, 
um, mm. along with your academics. And uh, so, you know, that uh, Hesnick committal didn't last very long. Um, Did well, you underestimate just how much discipline it required? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think you can really comprehend what a military boot camp kind of experience is like and, until you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it really it really sort of breaks you down um, to the most important fundamental aspect fundamental aspects of, of survival. You know, you're worried about eating, you're worried about staying healthy, um, and then it builds you back up um, in in such a way that you're incorporating some of the uh, some of the strengths that the program has to offer um, and some of the camaraderie that it has to offer uh, into, into your outlook. Um, and so, but most people who are only, uh, only partially committed uh, have to make a decision pretty quickly if you're gonna commit to that, commit to the organization uh, or not. So I did, uh, I did commit to uh, trying to become a Coast Guard officer and I graduated in 2003 uh, from the Coast Guard Academy, and I've been an active duty Coast Guard officer ever since. So, why the Coast Guard as opposed to other military branches, and how do, how does the Coast Guard how is it distinguished from the other branches of the military? I don't really have any sense. For right. Yeah. Good question. Um, so, the Coast Guard is the only military. There's five total. Uh, you know, the Coast Guard, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. Uh, the Coast Guard is the only part of the military that's not in the Department of Defense. Um, when I joined, it was in the Department of Transportation, um, and after after 9/11, when they formed the Department of Homeland Security, it moved to the uh, to DHS, um, and we do a lot of things that other military services don't get involved in. Um, for example, uh, Coast Guard officers and and uh, non-commissioned officers, senior enlisted folks, and petty officers have uh, law enforcement authority, federal law enforcement authority. Um, we're customs officers, um, which is uh, the original mission of the Coast Guard uh, when it was uh, founded by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton was to uh, collect revenue for the brand new country. Hmm. So the revenue cutters were the first uh, ships um, that ended up being part of what is today the Coast Guard. Uh, and they were out there, um, you know, connect, collecting duties and making sure that uh, things weren't being smuggled into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't tend to get as involved in customs uh, as much as we used to, but we still spend a lot of time making sure things aren't getting smuggled into the country. So uh, we picked up other missions along the way. In 1915, the Coast, the Coast Guard was formed in 1915. And it brought together other services, um, the life-saving service, um, the lighthouse service, the steamboat inspection service, hmm. and we, we still have all those missions. So we inspect all the uh, passenger ships um, in the U.S., ferries, and uh, we do inspections on, um, for safety purposes mainly, and we do inspections on foreign ships coming in for safety purposes and also to make sure uh, they're in compliance with all the international conventions on uh, pollution, and um, you know we still maintain all the lighthouses and aids to navigation in the country. Uh, we do. We're the primary federal agency for maritime search and rescue. Um, so yeah, we've collected all these missions and we're still doing them all uh, for the most part. 
and I think that's really distinct from the other services. Um, as, as for why I joined the Coast Guard, uh, my decision process was really, really simplistic. <laughs> um, I don't have great eardrums, I have some scar tissue in my ears, so I didn't want to fly, so I skipped on the Air Force. Mm. Um, my father had been in the Army, I decided I didn't want to uh, join the Army, so I didn't look at that, and I thought Navy ships were big, gray, and boring, and so I didn't look at that. Process of elimination? That's right, yeah. <laughs> And so that really unsophisticated method is how I ended up looking at the Coast Guard. And I, I, knew, I knew the Coast Guard did search and rescue, and I knew the Coast Guard um, had a really strong domestic uh, mission in the United States. And uh, I knew the Coast Guard was most likely to get me places that had really good seafood. So, mm. <laughs> so here I am. Right. And so the ethics of search and rescue is what your paper's about, and we'll discuss that. But first, how does a member of the Coast Guard find himself at the Yukon Philosophy Department? Yeah, that's that also happen? a great question. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the military and, and philosophy uh, done professionally are, are both professions. Hmm. Um, in, in which, in, and in that sense that I'm using the word profession, I mean they're, they're really more than jobs. Um, either one of those things, to do it uh, as well as you can, um, takes all of your time and effort and thought. Um, you know, in this program at UConn, it's hard for me to go for a few hours without thinking about uh, some philosophical puzzle or something I've been reading. Uh, and in my last job in the Coast Guard, I was the uh, chief of a combined uh, Pacific Area and District 11 Command Center in California, uh, which oversaw all the Coast Guard operations uh, in the Pacific, uh, a lot of the Arctic and the, the Indian Ocean. Uh, and it's a 24-7 operation, 365 days a year, never, never shuts down. So I was on the phone a lot. Um, if I wasn't on the phone, I was... A, thinking about or anticipating a phone call hmm. um, and even when I would be out with my family on the weekends uh, if, if I didn't get a phone call I'd be wondering why I was so quiet and sort of wondering what what's going <laughs> on so really so I, I see both of these things as as occupying so much of your bandwidth as a, as a human being that um, you can't really do them both at the same time hmm. uh, but I had the opportunity to pursue philosophy uh, because there's a position at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy to teach um, morals and ethics to cadets who are the, uh, you know, the future of the Coast Guard officer workforce. Right. Um, and to do that, they select a person every few years to, to go earn a master's in philosophy um, and, and teach that course. So I decided it's something I really uh, was interested in doing. I've, in fact, I've been interested in doing it since I took the course myself um, way back in 2001 um, and the timing worked out I was due to transfer to a new job at the same time that that um, position to go to a, a, gra a graduate school program opened up so I competed for it and got picked and, uh, and here I am here you are yep so you're on your way to getting your master's and then you'll be teaching at the Coast Guard Academy Right. Is the paper that I read the paper that you sent to get into Yukon? Or is that just a it is, paper? It is, in fact, yeah. Um, and, you know, to be honest, it's, it's really kind of rare that my uh, professional work and the substance of what I'm studying in philosophy intersect. Mm -hmm. um, 
so this is just an example of, of me sort of forcing that intersection where I, where I had to uh, had to think of a philosophically uh, interesting topic that I could write about uh, competently. <coughs> so that was really the original drive behind writing the paper mm. a few years ago. I think it's a really cool intersection. Um, do you want to jump into the paper? Is that cool? Uh, yeah, we can. Yeah, sure. So correct me where I stumble. So your basic thesis is you're talking about the ethics of search and rescue. Actually, I guess before we jump in, maybe you say something about search and rescue missions and just the general, uh, I guess it's a branch of the Coast Guard. Is that the right way to conceptualize um, it? It's it's one of the total 11 missions of the Coast Guard. Um, we tend to have, our branches are sort of organized by mission. So you have um, folks like uh, myself, I'm a response officer. So that means I could be doing pollution response. I could be doing law enforcement work. I could be doing search and rescue. Uh, You're responding to a problem. Responding to a problem, right? Um, my wife, for example, is also in the Coast Guard. She's a prevention officer. Mm. Uh, her specialty is in inspecting vessels, uh, ensuring safety regulations, uh, maintaining aids to navigation. Um, they do ice breaking, uh, things like that. So, so roughly speaking, their job is to prevent prevent situations from arising that we would then have to respond to. So those kind of hang together as two, the two the two parts of the Coast Guard. but So the, so the search and rescue is a mission. Um, we are the primary federal maritime search and rescue agency. Um, we pair up at the federal level with the uh, US Air Force and the Park Service to, to do all of the federal level search and rescue in the, in the country. Um, it's kind of a peculiarity of doing maritime work that outside Outside three miles or so, a lot of states don't um, have a lot of capabilities or jurisdiction uh, to respond. So while the Air Force doesn't necessarily actually do a lot of responses to things that are happening inside the continental United States, um, states are actually coordinating all those responses with sheriffs and mm -hmm. police departments and things like that. Um, we, we tend to go it more alone in the maritime area because there's obviously those resources just don't don't exist out there and as you say in the paper these response missions involve extremely complicated ethical situations and you're what you're basically doing is you know you're saying like yeah these are really hard ethical cases is there any particular philosophical ethical system that dictates these search and rescue missions and as you say no, there's not. You know, you can take some of the three most popular ethical theories in philosophy, virtue theory, utilitarianism, and deontology. And each of those theories plays a part in the ethics of search and rescue. And your paper largely involves explaining how each of these theories plays a part in the ethics of search and rescue, even though a lot of the main officers don't explicitly make these distinctions between these different theories. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, th I think you got it exactly right. Um, yeah, when we look at um, moral philosophy um, as philosophers, I think, uh, or as, as theorists, um, I think everybody sort of has their, their allegiance to a, uh, to a specific uh, theory as being perhaps more, more true, more correct, more reflective of either the way we actually operate or the way we, we should ideally operate as humans. Um, mm. And in my experience, just looking 
uh, at it as a as a military officer, um, it's you may you may select a, a moral theory or in this case I'm talking about what we would call first order normative moral theories, uh, the ones that are telling you what you ought to do and, and ought not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you can certainly select one as sort of the way you you choose to frame your moral outlook on interpersonal relations and how you live your life. Uh, but in the professional realm, in order to lead a diverse group of people or do uh, sort of complicated missions like this, you have you have to be grounded at least a little bit uh, in how all of these operate. Because um, you may have people who work for you, or you may work for people who have a specific uh, expectation that they've built based on their uh, preferred moral outlook on life, and um, you know the. The mission itself actually demands a multifaceted approach to to making decisions. Um, so yeah, that's that's basically. I'm drawing a distinction, I guess, between theory and practice mm-hmm. in, in terms of what kind of commitments to the different uh, major moral theories are required in order to be a a practitioner. <laughs> and I feel like in the realm of theory, philosophers are under the impression that one of these ethical theories has to be right. If utilitarianism is right, then the other two aren't right. But when you're talking about the realm of practice, the ethical situations are so complicated and so messy that, as you say, they demand the multifaceted approach. They demand that each of these theories plays a role. So the theories really aren't incompatible in the way that professional philosophers are tempted to regard them as incompatible. I mean, maybe they are in some theoretical sense. Right. Yeah. Um, I thought we could systematically walk through each theory and sure. you could explain how each theory plays a role in search and rescue missions. And we could start with virtue ethics. So what is virtue ethics and how is that involved? Yeah, so, so virtue ethics um, really has its roots in the uh, Aristotelian um, tradition. Um, and it's a system that holds that your virtue as a as a person is is really what you need to protect when you're making moral decisions and and to build. Um, it's a specific outlook that values uh, whether or not you are uh, living up to a, your ideals as a virtuous person. Um, it is really at the heart of what you're doing when you make ethical decisions. Um, it seems to be the one that fits probably least well with what um, we think of when we think about military people off doing military things, because uh, we assume that there's a chain of command and that there's rules that apply uh, to what you're doing. There's like a strict list of rules that you can refer right. to when having to make some ethical decision. Right, and and you know any decision you make has to be justified, um, and perhaps. Virtue ethics gets a little bit squishier than maybe some of the other theories do when it comes to pointing back to exactly what you relied upon to make to make your decision. Hmm. Um, because it just, according to virtue ethics, morality is just kind of grounded in your character, in your virtues. Correct. It's not, there isn't some explicit system of rules that you point to. It's just, I'm a virtuous person and virtue in this situation dictates this. In another situation, virtue might dictate something else. So it can kind of accommodate for the messiness. Right. Um, and I think the practical the, morality, sorry. Right, the, the the practical aspects of it, right? And I think that's part of what I'm what I'm pointing at in the in the paper is really where I see 
virtue ethics coming into the picture more often than, than not is um, when people are operating sort of at the boundaries of policy and um, sort of the limits of their capabilities and, and training. Um, if, if somebody says they're operating on gut or intuition or <laughs> a word like that, um, I think that that's code in a way for uh, the style of thinking they're using that's re most reflective of, of, of virtue theory. Um, and I think that's true because uh, when, you're, when you know you're operating sort of at the limits of your policy and training, um, folks are asking, you know, okay, if I'm going to make a decision to do something or not do something, um, what does that mean for my crew? What does that mean for me? Um, coming out of this, you know, what kind of person do I want to look back and see myself as, as having been in this situation? Mm. Um, and virtue ethics gives you the tools to operate in a, uh, a framework like that because you're looking at um, practical aspects like uh, wisdom, for example. Um, is the action you're contemplating practically rational or something you, you should do. Um, courage, you know, are you being reckless or uh, meeting the requirements uh, of the mission in terms of um, bravery or cowardice? Um, just, you know, there's going to be people involved in these decisions. What about your crew? Uh, what about the, the people who are on the other end of the operation? Maybe the person you're trying to save. Uh, are you being just and fair? Uh, to the interests that all these people have as people. Um, Am I right in, th in saying that the core virtues of the Coast Guard are honor, respect, and devotion to duty? Yeah, that's um, right. Those are the, we call them the core values. Um, they're relatively recent in the Coast Guard's history. Uh, I think 1994 was when they were instituted. Um, and, and right, they are there sort of as moral guidance in a way. Um, not exactly lining up with Aristotle's um, virtues 100%, uh, but really that's saying the same thing. That is that, you know, when, when all else fails, um, what are you gonna fall back on? Mm. And you're gonna fall back on these kind of concepts of um, what makes a person virtuous um, to be sort of, uh, aspirational guides, I guess, in a way, for, for behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like there's a whole lot of things to think about in there. Um, I think in practice, people who are frequently engaging their decision-making mechanisms are um, doing this fairly often to the point where they have a pretty good idea of where they stand on all these issues. Mm -hmm. so, so the actual calculation that you're making can be uh, practically immediate, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, and it's not immediate if you have to go appeal to a system of rules when you're dealing with a time-sensitive response that's situation. Right. That's right. But as you go on to point out, deontology does play some role. There is some, There are some absolute rules where if you're in that predicament, you have to do this, and there's no, uh, there's no discussion about it. Right, and... Uh, and I think one of the points I make in the paper is that there's a little bit of a, a chronology going on here. Right, right. Um, 
it, it used to be the case. I think the, uh, uh, let me see, I can pull up the quote here. Um, back in the 19th century, um, the life-saving service regulations from 1899 uh, stated that the statement of the keeper that he did not try to use the boat because the sea or surf was too heavy mm -hmm. will not be accepted unless attempts to launch it were actually made and failed. Yeah, I'm looking at that quote right now. Yeah. It's actually going to bring that up. I thought that was really interesting. So that was kind of a deontological rule that was implemented during at some time in the Coast Guard where you had to make an attempt to try to rescue what it, whatever the person was. And if you didn't, then you're breaking the rule. But sometimes it might not be prudent to make that attempt if the conditions are just so rough. Sometimes cost-benefit analysis, consequentialism can uh, dictate that it's just not smart to do that. Right. Yeah, and and that's and that's really you know if if you uh, buy into the idea that you have a duty uh, to go rescue people who are in distress um, at sea, then uh, one of the consequences of, of of that viewpoint is that you have a duty to make an attempt, even if uh, even if that might prove fatal to some of your crew, um, mm. that you had to at least make the attempt. Um, do you know when this regulation was lifted? I don't. That's a good question. Um, I know it obviously no longer appears in our policy. Um, most uh, folks do still feel like they have a duty to perform these missions. Um, mm -hmm. And that's part of our culture. Uh, and that's one of the points uh, I make about the deontological outlook is that... Um, a lot of people that believe very strongly in the missions that they're doing mm. uh, are going to be inclined to accept risks that are perhaps too great because of this sense of duty, because of the uh, the deontological requirements that they that they are internalizing um, and feeling that their duties outweigh any of the potential costs. Um, it's reminding me of Aristotle's virtue theory, where you know Aristotle might respond who's a virtue theorist, by saying that, you know, he, he thinks the virtues are kind of exist in this golden mean, right? For, for every virtue, there's an excess of that, and then there's a deficiency of that. So he might say, like, the idea that you have to be absolutely courageous at, in all scenarios isn't real courage. That might be the excess of courage. Right, <clears throat> right. And, and sometimes uh, knowing when to retreat uh, and live to fight another day is the courageous thing to do, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that certainly applies in this situation. Um, and it's incumbent upon leaders, again, this, this is a reason why uh, it's important to be at least conversational in, in the way people use these different theories and practice, uh, is to be able to recognize when, when um, somebody's particular moral outlook is driving them to make decisions that maybe um, are either not in line with what you believe that they should be doing as a, as the coordinator of that search and rescue mission or, or maybe just not safe for the people around them. Um, and that's why this sort of thinking has given way, for the most part, to uh, a much more consequentialist sort of process. Mm. Yeah, sure. so what is, what is consequentialism, the third ethical theory here? Right. Um, so I won't get into a lot of the... the theoretical apparatus of consequentialism, and there's obviously more than one kind um, mm -hmm. that's been developed. It's a big uh, rabbit hole we could go down. It's a big <laughs> rabbit hole, right. Um, 
But, you know, look, generally speaking, what, what consequentialism is going to say is that you're trying to produce the, the greatest possible benefit for the greatest number of people um, when you're making decisions that have moral import. Um, and interestingly, uh, I think a lot of the consequentialism that happens um, out there in the world is, is kind of mechanized in a way. And what I mean by when I say it's been mechanized is uh, it's been sort of translated into cost-benefit sort of procedures or um, mm -hmm. the one that we see often in, in my line of work is uh, risk management. Um, and I think really the, the root cause of that is that um, when people are employed in a line of work where they're making decisions that have moral significance sort of day in and day out, um, firefighters, police officers, um, certainly military personnel, and all kinds of other professions, um, doctors, uh, you know, you could go on and on. Um, it can be crippling, I think, um, to face all of those day-to-day -day decisions as as weighty moral decisions. Mm. If the stress associated with looking at all these things in that particular way, I think, is, is pretty big for people. Um, in what particular way? Just from the perspective of cost-benefit analysis? Well, just from the perspective of recognizing that you're in a situation where you have to make a moral decision. Mm. Um, just the gravity of that. The gravity of that decision. And if someone has to do this a couple times a day, um, just imagine how exhausting and, and uh, you know, emotionally uh, nerve-wracking that, <laughs> that is for somebody to, I can't. to deal with. I'm just doing podcasts um, and reading philosophy. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and, and I think... Like I said, all, all kinds of folks all over the world, um, I think, make moral decisions on a regular basis under, right. under a sort of consequentialist way of thinking and, and sort of call it something else. And, and that's, that's what I think risk management is uh, in the context of search and rescue, is you're doing a, a type of cost-benefit analysis, the goal of which is to bring about the best possible result um, for the greatest number of people involved. Mm -hmm. that you can, uh, given the circumstances and given the resources. Uh, and I imagine, and this is just a, a worry for consequentialism in general, but there is a kind of time-sensitive concern there as well, because sometimes there's just not enough time to weigh the benefits versus the costs, or it's hard to anticipate what the consequences are going to be. And again, a lot of these situations are very time-sensitive. Yeah, and... Which is you know where virtue ethics comes in, I suppose. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, and, and when you're uh, if you're in a situation where you're where you're um, out there at sea getting pounded by thirty foot waves, um, the risk profile of your mission can change pretty rapidly and dramatically depending on what's going on around you, and you really have to continually reassess what what's happening in the situation, mm -hmm. um, and that can be a little bit difficult to do, especially if you're trying to include your whole team of people um, that are engaged in that mission with you in on that sort of uh, consequentialist analysis. Um, and in those situations, uh, we're fortunate that there, 
there are leaders, and I think that they're relying on um, a virtue ethic approach to sort of stick to their core values and and do um, the best that they can given the circumstances, however challenging those might be. And developing a competency in this doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the corporate world, you can find situations where um, you know, a board will bring in new leadership, sort of like a new uh, outlook on, on the company into some fairly senior leadership position. Um, you don't see that in the military. Hmm. You don't tend to see that in uh, you know, fire departments and police departments. Uh, folks in positions of leadership have gotten there uh, only by succeeding under pressure um, through through their experiences and sort of climbing the ladder. Um, They're not bringing in any outsiders. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, you know, the outsiders who come in, come in um, sort of at the bottom and, and work their way up through the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is because when you're put in these situations where you have to make a very quick decision, um, there's an expectation that you're relying on a pretty solid foundation of experience and um, sort of a theoretical outlook that you've built over over the span of a career. Um, and that guarantees, as well as anybody can, that the decisions you make are gonna be the right ones um, when, the, when the pressure is on. Um, Could you perhaps give an example of a messy moral search and rescue mission that either you've been involved in or one of the examples from the paper just to make things a little more tangible? Right, um, so I think an example I used in the paper, um, any example I use in the paper is kind of a uh, <laughs> based on a true story kind of example. There was some elaboration here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that I use is uh, you know a boat a boat that gets launched from a, a Coast Guard station, a small boat station, to go out and do a search and rescue mission. Um, they can do their risk analysis and they can look at the weather and they can look at the crew and how much rest they've had and uh, look at how far they have to go, um, assess how well they can communicate with their chain of command, look at all the individual factors that go into their risk analysis. Um, decide to accept the mission, get out there, and conditions are not exactly what they expected. Say they're a little worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and say they're worse to an extent that um, maybe the sea height actually exceeds the technical capabilities of the boat that they're in. Um, say they're only supposed to, under normal conditions, operate this kind of boat in uh, a sea height of six feet or less. And when they get out there, it's more like seven or eight. Um, there's a coxswain or a, you know, the boat driver who's in charge of operating that boat and responsible for all the people on it. And now they have to make a decision. Um, they know that they need to get out to where this distress is occurring, try to effect a rescue. Um, they also know that they're in over their head a little bit in terms of the, uh, um, the conditions that they're running into, the weather conditions. And they also know that they're sort of risk analysis they made at the beginning um, 
is flawed now uh, because it was based on an inaccurate assumption about what the conditions would be. Mm. So they have to decide if they're going to press on, um, if they're going to stop and ask for uh, permission um, from their chain of command to continue the mission, even though they're out of uh, the stated limits for for the platform or the boat they're in, um, or they have to decide if they are not going to accept the mission any longer, um, and that the risk is too great, and they're going to turn around and uh, ask that uh, you know a more appropriate asset, maybe a helicopter or a, a bigger boat or a ship, um, be used instead. And there's a any number of theoretical outlooks that can bear on that decision. Mm. Um, certainly, um, you know, there you have the deontological view um, that we kind of just talked about briefly where uh, this, this person may say, no, this is our duty um, and we need to get this mission done. Um, we're going to just have to accept the increased risk and, and charge on. How dominant is that outlook? Like, as we've talked about, that used, the deontological outlook used to be more dominant. We gave an example of that one regulation. It's kind of given way to virtue ethics and consequentialism. But just the way that the military is kind of portrayed in movies and stuff, it's really portrayed as the deontological outlook being very dominant, where right. you're a coward if you don't want to go out and do this. So there's not much room for nuance. At least, in, and again, this is an outsider who's just knowledge of the military is largely based on documentaries and things like that. Right. Um, I, I don't, well, first, first of all, um, looking at these missions that I've personally been involved in, they're, they're very different uh, in a lot of different ways from combat, for example. Um, right. And the decision-making that goes into um, what folks are doing in those circumstances is, is going to be a little bit different. Um, I mean, the tolerance, the risk tolerances are different. The uh, what, what you're willing to sacrifice in terms of for for what gain is going to be different. Um, but I, I would say, in general, it's part of the cultural basis um, of the organization um, that's that's definitely there and definitely something that people are, are cognizant of. Um, but we also have. And a good thing, because the goal is to face danger in a way that other citizens wouldn't be able to. Right, right. And devotion to duty is right there in the core values, yeah. uh, which is kind of a, an interesting blending of, uh, of theoretical concepts right there. Um, so you don't, you don't want to drive that out of your organization, um, and you definitely don't want people to uh, um, you know, get squishy on their values. Um, so I think that it's important that that is a factor in people's decision making. Um, but we, we also do an awful lot of training and uh, an awful lot of um, exercise and repetitive sort of um, drilling on, on managing risk and the different ways you can do that, um, which as I said, I, I think really is a, a consequentialist process. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't think it overrides most decisions. And most of these decisions, um, when done properly, given enough time, um, and given enough um, ability to communicate, involve a, involve a chain of people uh, whose job it is to make sure that there's some checks and balances on the process and 
um, that people aren't getting tunnel vision and making a bad bad call without without support from other people around them. Is there some philosophical training that you've picked up from UConn that you know you want to implement at the Coast Guard when you go back? Like, for example, do you want to make these conceptual distinctions between these ethical theories that we've been discussing more explicit to people in the Coast Guard and say, like, hey, like, here's, we can kind of disentangle these different uh, ethical theories that are driving our actions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you, you know, and, that, and that's part of the program. Um, and I, I guess I should. I guess it'd be a good time to say basically what you know what I believe the whole objective of um, ethical philosophical training is. And um, I think we've all heard folks or maybe seen interviews on television where people where you know where someone says, "Why did you do that?" Um, and the response is something to the effect that, "Well, I just did what I felt was right," or. It felt like the right thing to do, um, and you know, in, in a way, um, that's a response, but it's not an answer to that question. I don't think. Uh, I think what people are asking for when they ask, you know, why why did you do that? They're looking for a justification in terms of what process did you use to arrive at the conclusion you arrived at. Mm. Um, what was your chain of reasoning? Exactly. What was your chain of reasoning? And it's true in a lot of philosophical fields, I think, um, that so- sometimes the conclusion you arrive at at the end of your argument um, isn't the most important thing, isn't the most important aspect of that argument. Um, in fact, it may be shocking or completely different from what you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you follow the dialectic, you follow the chain of reasoning. Wherever it goes. Wherever it goes. And, you know, if that ends up being, the, you know, if you end up with the conclusion that color doesn't really exist in the world, <laughs> and we're just projecting that. We're um, about to talk about that in the seminar. <laughs> then, uh, then, you know, you have to be prepared in philosophy to sort of um, flex and adjust your web of beliefs to accommodate this conclusion if, if, in fact, that's what you're willing to accept based on your argument. Right. Um, I think that moral philosophy is a little bit different than that in that um, there probably are some conclusions that we would just reject outright um, and be uncomfortable with accepting uh, and instead say you know no it, I reject the conclusion there must be a problem somewhere in the argument let's let's go find it um, <laughs> if, if an ethical <laughs> theory says that murdering innocent school children is morally permissible, we've probably gone somewhere wrong along the way. But yeah. if some metaphysical theory says that consciousness is everywhere, like that's the conclusion, you might be like, ah, hey, you know what? It's counterintuitive, but that's where the argument leads. That's where it leads. But we don't, we resist that right. in, in ethics. Right. There's some bullets that you don't want to bite, um, I think, is, would be you know, a way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that still is not to say that it doesn't matter how you arrived at that decision. Um, we still want to know when we're asking somebody, you know, why why did you do that? We want to we want a reconstruction of their of their premises and their argument, the thought process they used to arrive at the conclusion that they did. Hmm. Um, and I think that's especially true when you look at. Um, military leaders or anybody that you know high-ranking public servants who serve in the public trust 
and have a responsibility to um, the public, I think it's particularly sort of heinous or unacceptable if a response to, you know, <laughs> why did you do this is, is, well, I felt like that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think there's a reasonable expectation um, in the public that the response is going to be a little bit more nuanced than that and more, uh, you know, better constructed, well thought out, and based on um, some really clear justification. So maybe you can bring some more of that nuance into the Coast Guard by making these distinctions explicit and getting right. people to think more about them. Right, exactly. So, so in a way, you know, we're trying to rid the organization of um, the possibility of the response that, well, I did this because I felt it was right, you know, mm-hmm. um, and having a little bit more background, a little more education in, in how to go about making ethical decisions and the different resources that are, that are available uh, to employ in making those decisions, I think, is really important for people in a position of leadership. And, and, and as I said, it's also important for them to not only develop and employ their own, um, you know, theoretical um, apparatus, but also be able to understand what other people are using, mm-hmm. you know, um, so that you can recognize when somebody's under you know, under stress and making a decision or um, struggling with making a decision or maybe is making the wrong decision. So, um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where we started out with that question, but that's where we <laughs> ended <serious>. up. <laughs> so. Well, I think maybe now is a good time to, I can just throw at you some other more general questions about military ethics. Yeah. Maybe like half an hour. Is that cool? Yeah. And again, I'm not expecting that you're an expert on any of this stuff. I, I just, can guarantee you I not <laughs> yeah. These are just some questions that I started to thinking started to think about as I turned my mind towards military ethics. The first, which we actually discussed last week a little bit, is just the entire idea of there being ethics within the context of war, or there yeah. being formal rules within the context of war. This has always struck me as kind of just extremely odd. I mean, you know, war for a long time, at least in some countries, right, was governed by these formal rules. Like in the American Revolution, you have them lining up and there's a particular way it's done, they fire first, but the ultimate goal is to annihilate your enemy. So the idea that we'd be playing this game according to stringent rules doesn't even seem to make sense. It's just, we're talking about the most barbaric human activity and we're assuming that ethics can exist within that context, or some people will say that. Does ethics within the context of war even make sense? Is it an illusion? Do you understand what I'm, the basic? Yeah, and confusion. <laughs> yeah, and that is a big question. It wow. is a very big um, question. It, I I think um, you actually put it in my mind. I think I think you made a comment about this last week in one of the seminars. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, I th- I think I I think I did make a comment. Basically, um, um, I mentioned. Um, Hugo Grotius, uh, who was a um, a philosopher who sort of, I think, got the ball rolling on the whole idea that there needs to be rules in war, um, and that victory at all costs um, is not necessarily a victory. <laughs> if mm. you indeed have paid um, all of the uh, you know, 
moral and um, physical costs associated with getting that victory no matter what. Um, it's kind of like if you cheat your way to success, you didn't really win because you, you right, cheated. Right, right. Um, and, you know, this comes out of a long human history, obviously, of warfare being terrible in every conceivable way. Um, where the outcome of loss in, in warfare would be either death or enslavement. Um, the outcome would not be much better for non-combatants, you know, uh, women and children who weren't participating in, in warfare, but maybe were part of the societies that were at war with each other. Um, and the idea, I think, in uh, an ethics of war is that mutual annihilation need not be an objective. Um, wars are often fought with particular objectives in mind. Um, wars can be limited in scope. Uh, they can be limited in terms what, of what people are willing to do um, to gain victory. And they can be limited in such a way that uh, you know, entire civilizations don't have to rise and fall based on the outcome of of wars that are fought for spe specific purposes. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I can I can I can only look at this from my own perspective. I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of background in um, in sort of how the how the Geneva Conventions were built, mm -hmm. um, which is really what we what we operate under. In, in the Western world, as as our rules of warfare and how we treat each other in war, um, so I don't have a lot of real background in it. But you know, the question I would ask is, um, if we have certain values, um, certain foundational principles that we hold as con constitutive of our society, um, whatever those might be. Uh, you know, a, f a fundamental respect for the value of human life. Um, Not killing innocent civilians. Correct. For example. Um, then you can't afford to sacrifice um, those foundational core values. Uh, for winning a war. Right. Or like and, torturing might be another one, depending on who you have. Yep. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, the... Um, uh, the U.S. military is, is, is never really free and clear from the possibility of these kinds of abuses. Um, I mean, we've seen it in uh, Abu Ghraib, I think. Um, there's sort of a, several years back now, but basically the treat, treatment of prisoners of wars by um, the American military was, was called into question due to some degrading, humiliating practices. Um, and the outrage associated that associated with that was precisely um, precisely what I'm talking about when I say that it was uh, not consistent with the foundational um, values on which we build our society. Um, and so I, I think uh, you know there's certain limits on on what can be done mm -hmm. um, and still claim that you operate under the values that you claim to have as a society. So that may be idealistic. Um, yeah. It may be over-optimistic. And of course, it may be easy to say something like that when you're not engaged in a real um, struggle for survival. Um, 
Yeah, let me just make that disclaimer. Like, I have these intuitions, but all of these intuitions could immediately be shattered if I were to be actually placed in the context of battle, right? I'm just a philosopher sitting in my armchair thinking about these things. And right. I agree with everything that you just said. I still can't shake the intuition that there's something almost incoherent about the idea of morality existing in a game where the goal is to kill your opponent. Because I guess maybe this speaks to your concern that it might be idealistic. If we're confronting an enemy that's not playing this ethical game that we're playing, and they're willing to kill innocent civilians, they immediately have a leg up. They immediately aren't constrained by things that we're constrained by. So if it's an opponent that's a worthy opponent, it would seem like pragmatically it's wise to drop these ethical codes within this context of war. Right. Just for the greater good almost. Right. So that's kind of a utilitarian argument for not acting on our core values in war so we can preserve our core values so we don't get defeated. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and that's an, it's a really uh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good argument to uh, to counter it. Um, yeah, it's just but but what I I would say that even um, even in situations where survival is really a question, um, where yeah, like the extreme, where you're in a uh, do or die, kill or be killed kind of situation, I think. Uh, you know, amazingly, even in those situations, um, there still exists, I think, from what I've studied and read about it, which again is, is limited, is a sort of mutual respect um, between combatants. Um, it may be respect for their resolve, maybe respect for their bravery. Um, but it's something very human, and it's something uh, that really resembles res- mutual respect. Mm. And, and I think uh, as long as that's there, then maybe you have the foundation you need to build um, an ethics around that. Um, there, there's some shared value between you and your combatant. Right, you know, and, and some, some shared sympathy, I think, too. And again, I, you know, I can't really base this on anything except, uh, I certainly can't base it on my own personal experience. Um, but there's a sense in which people understand that if uh, they're facing off with a combatant um, in a situation that looks like war, um, that neither they nor their combatant necessarily want to be there. Um, hmm that they are there for a specific purpose and they have a job to do and they're sort of stuck in that situation together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard a couple um, military folks sort of uh, speak this way about their combat experience, about having this sort of appreciation that that they and the enemy are all pawns in the same sort of game. Um, They're they're united in virtue of that fact. (laughs) Right, right. And so... You know, there there may be there may be certain, um, and in fact, I think there probably are certain things that um, they're not going to be willing to um, to do to each other simply because of that mutual respect. Now, that may not include not killing each other. 
that may be just part of what has to happen, um, unfortunately. Um, but you know, this is a just quickly. This is another point you made last week in the seminar. But you know, maybe that human that sympathy is dependent upon you conceptualizing your combatant as as a human, as a as a fellow human who's in this with you. A lot of times, the worst moral atrocities can be committed when you dehumanize your enemies. Right. You're not even seeing them as a human, and now you can justify all of these moral atrocities, which would otherwise be unwarranted. Right, and I think, um, it, you know, one of my philosophical heroes, uh, Marcus Aurelius, um, the Stoic, was in fact a uh, Roman emperor, but was before that uh, a general, is um, a military philosopher, uh, and he um, makes a very similar point that a lot of problems can be solved by putting yourself in someone else's shoes and sort of um, trying to experience the world that they experience in the same way they experience the world. Mm. Um, and he certainly was involved in combat for a lot of his uh, <laughs> reign as emperor of, of Rome. Um, and in fact, and in fact, died on a campaign in Central Europe somewhere. Um, but so he certainly had experience with with uh, being in combat and leading troops in combat, and that didn't seem to affect at least his theoretical outlook. Um, that you know we take our narrow scope of self-interest, and and as people we push it out as far as we can to encompass as much of. Um, society and humanity as we can and that part of that is sort of understanding uh, having a, an empathy that can only come from being able to see something from somebody else's point of view mm -hmm. uh, and, and realizing I think in a way that, that you know you may be in opposition to someone um, but that some of your values and the reasons why you fight might overlap quite a bit you know um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's kind of there in the background. And that's really an unsatisfactory answer and it's probably, there's no argument in there to, to salvage, but <laughs> those are at least some thoughts on it. <laughs> and I know, again, I know it's an extremely large question, but it kind of leads to the next question that I have, which is maybe we're entering a future where the soldiers will actually won't have to be in the battlefield anymore. And again, I have to admit my own ignorance with respect to just the evolution of warfare throughout human history, but it seems to be a process of getting our skin out of the game, so to speak, right? Originally, it's just fist-to-fist -fist combat, and then we invented some weapons, so we're a little more abstracted now from the flesh-to-flesh, -flesh. and eventually we have guns, and now we, then we have nuclear weapons, and now we have drones, so it's just this process of us getting our skin out of the game, and that seems to pose this ethical dilemma. On the one hand, we would want to use autonomous weapon systems because then we don't have to send innocent Americans, um, just American soldiers to die, right? We don't have to send our own soldiers to die. Right. So that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if our skin's out of the game and we're not sending the soldiers, we might be more tempted to go to war. We might make ethical decisions that are not good ethical decisions that we might not make if we actually act had to send bodies. So do you... I guess, uh, how, do you, how do you view that ethical dilemma? And again, I know that's another 
large can of worms. <laughs> uh, I view it as an ethical dilemma, Cody. Now, um, <laughs> that's exactly. How is I it view a it. dilemma? Uh, <laughs> well, I think it. I think it is a dilemma uh, because obviously uh, <laughs> you're you're onto something there. Um, I guess. Yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts. There, there's there's cer- there's certainly. Um, the idea that there are technologies and capabilities out there that can make war fighting smarter, um, <laughs> safer, perhaps from one point of view, I guess, uh, sort of coincides with a, um, you know, I think there's definitely a low tolerance for the loss of human life um, in war fighting, perhaps just in comparison to what maybe has been historically. Um, when you look at the tremendous loss of life associated with things like the Civil War and the, and the fact that that, uh, that was fought all the way to the end, um, even with loss of life on a scale that, uh, uh, you know, it's hard for us to imagine now. And, and certainly I think that was the case in World War One and World War Two. Um, so... Yeah, if, if you can engage um, in military objectives without uh, that attendant loss of life, um, there are a lot of reasons to suspect that, um, in fact, we have an obligation um, to do that, right? Um, and isn't this the process of reasoning that Truman went through and deciding to drop the nuclear bomb? Like... It, 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 it would just because of the resilience of the Japanese culture, if we if it, we sent an invasion in with soldiers, that would have led to it's kind of a cost benefit analysis that would have led to more of a loss of life than if we just used this technology and we could get our skin out of the game. And right. I, I think people are divided. You know, who knows whether that actually was the best scenario in terms of preventing loss of life? But I think right. it was that kind of this kind of question that we're considering is the question that was going through his head, right? Right, the, the use of some available technology to um, shorten and decrease the, the overall cost of, a, of an ongoing conflict. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a, a pretty good example, I think. And the fact that there is such, you know, intractable um, sort of debate on whether or not that was the right decision. Yeah. I think, and that is probably never going to be uh, conclusive um, for one side or the other, is pr- a pretty clear indicator that the debate about using um, increasingly sophisticated autonomous technologies to do um, uh, war fighting is going to face the same sort of debate, potentially indefinitely, right? Um, and I think that, that there are... There are uh, reasons why you should be concerned about autonomous uh, technologies because I think that there is a implicit um, expectation that we have as people, which may or may not be well-founded, that having to, you know, there's a, a certain um, phenomenology associated with Interhuman interaction. Um, As we were just talking about. To right to identify <coughs> to identify uh, who's who, 
who's friend, who's not friend, who's a target, who's not a target, you know, who's engaged in uh, combat and who isn't, mm-hmm. um, that we rely on, on a wide range of observations about the world and our perceptions of them to make uh, these kind of uh, decisions. And, um, you know, I am nowhere near understanding the capabilities of uh, computer technologies to make these distinctions. Um, but I think there's a distrust uh, at some level of the ability of any level of sophisticated uh, technology to do it the way we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this goes back to what you were talking about before we started the podcast, the, having a human in the loop. So even if we right. have drones in the field, the human's going to be making the ultimate decision that's controlling the, the, the drone. Yeah, and, and I, um, you know, as I understand it, uh, a lot of the technology that's being employed is either human in the loop or human on the loop, uh, meaning either the human has to make a decision right. um, on what is going to happen or the human at least has an opportunity to intervene in the automated decision process to, to stop something from happening that they don't want to happen. Um, and, and I feel this like it's probably an inappropriate comparison. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of think about my, uh, I need a, a new microwave. And, mm-hmm. you know, do we trust our microwaves? And I realize a microwave is not a piece of military te- technology. Right, right, right. But just, an just for the sake of example, you know, do you, do you trust your microwave to make popcorn? Because I don't, right? Um, it has a setting, it's supposed to be automated. You can tell it to make popcorn. Um, it has a popcorn button. It has right? a button. Never used that button. I haven't either because I don't think it works, right? I mean, <laughs> do you, do you, are you going to walk away from the microwave? No, you're not because you know uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to work and you're going to end up with either a bag full of unpopped kernels or burnt uh, popcorn with smoke all over your kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we know our microwave is supposed to do these things. Uh, and they've been around a long time, so supposedly the technology has been perfected. <laughs> but we don't. We don't. We don't trust our microwaves to be able to do these things the way we can when we're using our phenomenological experience to say, okay, I'm going to wait until the popping gets to this level, and then I'm going to kind of know when it's done, right? Um, that sort of uh, quality of being able to perceive, like, oh, that's the point at which it's done. You know, mm-hmm. you can see the inflation of the bag. You, you got to stay by the microwave decrease. and look. Right. Um, and we trust ourselves to make those kinds of decisions, those totally inconsequential decisions that we don't trust a, a machine to be able to figure out just by it running a pre- pre-programmed um, sequence of, of timed events. And I think that that, you know, if that sort of simple kind of thought process doesn't enter our minds at some point, mm-hmm. um, when we're talking about using deadly force um, weapons, then, um, you know, I, I think we should be charged with putting too much faith in the technology. Um, and I feel like another justification for the human in the loop principle is just that more, it has to do with moral responsibility. If there's a drone that kills some innocent civilian and there's no human in the loop, you can ask, who's morally responsible for this atrocity? 
Is it right. the programmer who programmed the drone? Like, who is it? And it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer if there's not a human in the loop. And, so, you know, some people will say death demands responsibility. Yeah, and you also have to ask what's our motivation for doing, um, for pursuing these kinds of technologies. And, you know, if in fact the justification is to decrease um, the risk that we put people in, um, then that just by itself doesn't necessarily justify pulling humans out of the decision-making process. Um, because you can, you can supervise missions safely at a distance and be involved in the decision-making process um, without being um, in a situation that's at risk any more than you or I are at risk in this room here right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if in fact that's the justification, that, then that would not justify pulling humans out of the decision-making loop. Um, mm-hmm. So Yeah, and like I said, I have no idea how sophisticated the current military technology is, how, right. how often <laughs> the military is using these autonomous weapon systems. Right. Um, okay, maybe one more question we got 11:53. yeah we gotta go soon um well i guess i'm scared because i don't want to just throw i have a couple more questions here but one of them is a really really broad general question i don't want to just throw a, a rabbit hole at you i guess do, do you have a lighter question do you have a favorite time period of military history or a favorite war that interests you the most or a uh, favorite war that just sounds awful doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let me put that differently uh, yeah. I, I think I a war you that you find the most uh, interesting from an intellectual standpoint in terms of understanding human warfare uh, wow. you, you understand that yeah I mean that's a really good question I think uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, in the military but not a military scholar to the, to the extent that I haven't really studied military history uh, mm-hmm. as much as even a lot of uh, sort of like hobby enthusiasts have. Um, so I'm still laughing at the favorite <laughs> war phrase. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I'm just know, curious. I, I, I grew up on a, uh, on a Civil War battlefield right next to one in, uh, in Virginia. And I think the the history um, and really the tragedy associated with that is 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 so compelling um, that understanding um, you know how how something like that came to pass um, how the social fabric broke down mm-hmm. and in such an irreparable way that the Civil War happened in this country. I think we all understand, you know, the historical factors that were driving um, that were driving it. Um, but that and the sort of rippling consequences that are still part of the um, consciousness of various Americans and, and how they look at the world is fascinating. Um, so I'm definitely not an expert on, it, um, but I think uh, I think we are we would be well advised to look at um, really understanding how that conflict occurred and then how it's impacted the way uh, we look at ourselves as a country still 
um, and you know just see what sort of uh, poignant lessons are, are there yeah I agree I've been listening to this podcast called Hardcore History and this dude named Dan Carlin but yeah it's just learning about World War Two and World War One. It's just made me realize, as you say, how badly things can go, how the social fabric can just be torn apart. And that's why I feel like that's why I'm interested in it, because, you know, for me, I've grown up in this time of relative peace. And it's easy, I feel like, to come under the illusion that things have always been this way and things are going to always be this way, that we're living in this time period that's kind of post-history. And now the Enlightenment ideals have manifested themselves and, you know, all's good now. But... There, yeah. And this is a point I'll make a lot. There have been so many countries and civilizations that have been dominant throughout the world and existed for longer than the United States that have fallen. And just by studying history, by studying the just barbaric uh, past of our species, it's easy to immediately recognize how, how flimsy this whole project is and how nothing's guaranteed. And I feel like people, like people are forgetting that almost. Like progress isn't guaranteed. It can it can go backwards. That was the, that right. was the whole Dark Ages right. thousand right. year period. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, it's it's really fascinating uh, to wonder at how many other points in in the history of our species have people thought they lived in a post historical society. Yeah, right. It's a cool question. <laughs> um, there's, there's kind of a little bit of arrogance sort of built into that. Um, yeah, history's behind us. We're all good now. Yeah, we're good now. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, you know, we conquered, uh, look at everything that happened in the last century. Um, you know, we conquered, we conquered polio and all these horrible diseases and uh, all that's behind us. And, uh, mm. and oh, wait, maybe it's not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course... Now suddenly we have a problem um, convincing everybody to, to get vaccines. Right. So, right. <laughs> um, so you know, maybe that's maybe we can't say that all of that is uh, you know part of our history and, and not part of our current concern. Um, it's just right. Rec- there's not. I guess it's recognizing that there's not a necessary force that's driving this progress. Like yes, it has transpired, but it's not inevitable. It's not like there's this cosmic Hegelian life force that's just directing history towards the good. Maybe some people believe in that, but I personally don't i think that it's contingent you know right right um yeah that's interesting i i don't think you can put it i don't think there would be any way really to put it in terms of a uh um necessity yeah a necessary consequence of of the human project um yeah but i think it is true um that as long as there are responsible advances in technology and individuals making individual decisions um, to harness these things responsibly and find good ways to employ them, uh, you know, decrease the amount of overall suffering in the world to the extent possible, uh, that there is a cumulative kind of force to these things, right? Mm. Um, And um, that failure really is just a matter of one of these um of some some of these things sort of not failing to hold right and falling apart um that there are um disagreements between um 
people about very important things that cause us to to divert our attention from uh, making progress um, and and focus on um, being contrarians in some way or fighting against each other somehow. Um, but you know, I think there's also a lot of practical factors that go into that. Um, the ability to focus attention on decreasing overall human suffering has as, I think, a precondition, um, a requirement that you not be uh, worried about your day-to-day -day survival um, in order to engage in those kinds of projects, right? Hmm. Um, engage in projects that are um, um, sort of aimed at the benefit of others requires that you are no longer looking out for the benefit only of yourself. And, and there's a certain amount of um, quality of life and a certain amount of, um, you know, basic needs that have to be met as a society on a pretty broad scale before you can divert that kind of attention um, into making progress for humanity. Right. Um, so to a large extent, I think you'd be wrong to say that there aren't just purely economic factors or purely, um, you know, just uh, environmental factors um, that if those things fail to obtain, then we wouldn't be able to sustain progress. You know, um, a massive food shortage worldwide would pretty quickly bring an end to um, a lot of this pursuit of continued innovation and continued technology, technological improvement and human progress, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that, I mean, there's some rambling thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I wanted. I wanted rambling thoughts. Yeah. But I think we're about out of time. we got to go talk about whether color actually exists. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't wait. Um, I think, uh, or or whether we should keep telling people that it does, even if we don't believe it. Right. It's an interesting question. Right, well, thanks for coming on, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate yeah. You taking yeah. Time. Thanks for having me, and um, you know, good luck with your project. I really like what you're doing here. Uh, just engaging with students and faculty about what they're doing. Uh, it's really interesting, and I'll be, I'll be looking forward to listening to it. Thanks, man. Till next time.